And so we begin in this epilogue, chapter 21, verse 1. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, or the Sea of Galilee. And he manifested himself in this way. Now we're going to camp out on this verse because this verse is really key to, to throwing open the doors to the rest of the passage. So uh, we'll, we'll camp out here and then we'll move rather swiftly through the rest of the, of the passage. The NIV, and this is not just a pick for the sake of picking on a translation. It, this is for the sake of kind of setting, putting, using a foil to help us see the beauty of what's going on here. The NIV says, after Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. Uh, oh, after, after this, afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Now you notice the difference. First of all, I just want to say Jesus, John does not say Jesus appeared. There's another Greek word for that. It does not say he appeared. It says that he manifested himself. Not only that, but John doesn't say, it happened this way. He purposefully repeats himself. So the NIV wanted to avoid the repetition. John was purposefully repetitious. And so when we, when we try to improve on, on things, it doesn't work out well. We lose what is going on. And so John repeats himself, uh, he manifested himself in this way. Then in verse 14, at the end of this section, John is going to bookend this entire passage by saying again, this is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So, manifested. It's another John word. And, uh, you know, when you read a book or, and you read an author enough, you start to get an idea for words they like. Um, I'm sure you could tell me some of the words I like as you listen to me long enough. Um, you, manifested is a John word. It has the sense of unveiling something that was hidden. Uh, uncovering something that was previously unknown. So we read in 1 John, chapter 1, another book by the same author, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested. And we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. So what does John have in mind then when he says that Jesus manifested himself? Let's look at how John uses his John word. In chapter 1, John the Baptist said of the one who came after him but who was before him, I did not know him, but so that he might be manifested To Israel, I came baptizing with water. You see, the emphasis is on the saving manifestation. It's not just, 
It's not just like I could be in the other room and you can't see me. Then I walk out and I've appeared and you see me. No, manifested in John has a deeper significance. It's the saving manifestation of Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In chapter 2, Jesus turned the water to wine. uh, Yes, the water to wine at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. And John tells us that Jesus did this in Cana of Galilee as the beginning of his signs and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So the sign was uncovering something that was, that was hidden, that was maybe previously unknown. In chapter 9, Jesus says to the man born blind, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this was so that the works of God, his works, might be manifested in him. And again, what we're to understand is that what's to be manifested is God's saving power because he gives sight not just to the physically blind. He opens up the eyes of the spiritually blind. So when this blind man's eyes are opened, he's going to see not only Jesus standing there. Jesus won't just be manifested to him as a a man standing in front of his eyes. Jesus will be manifested to him as the Savior, as the one before whom he worships. In chapter 17, Jesus prays, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. And here again we have the manifesting of God's saving power, his name. That's just not something that any person off the street can see without God's grace working in us. The manifestation of this something we need God's enabling power to see and to perceive. And this manifestation calls for saving faith in the hearts of those the Father gave the Son. So, in your handout, I ask you, are you beginning to feel the weight, the weight of this word manifested? As it's used in John's Gospel. Now, in in the days of his fleshly weakness, let's look at this for a minute. Jesus, strictly speaking, never manifested himself. I mean, if you just looked at Jesus as he walked by the street, uh, on, by you on the road one day, there would be no real manifestation of anything. Yeah, you'd see him, but what else are you seeing? You'd think there was a man like any other man walking by. Jesus, he did manifest his glory through his words, through his deeds. But that's different from manifesting, manifesting himself. There's something different going on there. So he actually never did really manifest himself. That's language you don't see prior to the resurrection. He was there with his disciples all the time. And he was there in fleshly weakness. There was nothing special about him just looking at him. Isaiah 53 makes that clear. But now what do we read in chapter 21? After these things, Jesus manifested himself. And he manifested himself again to the disciples of the Sea of Tiberias. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested 
to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And so what we see there is that now, whenever Jesus shows up, whenever Jesus appears, to use that word, that appearance is more than an appearance. Like before, if Jesus walked into the room, Jesus made an appearance. Jesus appeared. But, but now, every appearance of Jesus is more than an appearance. It's a manifestation. It's a manifestation to the disciples. It's a manifestation of himself. Not just bodily to physical eyes, but spiritually to eyes of faith. May God graciously give us this morning eyes of faith to see. Now every appearance of Jesus is a manifestation in your handout of his saving power and of his saving glory. Remember from a couple of weeks ago that on the one hand there's a continuity between the body that Jesus laid in the tomb and the Jesus raised up from the grave. The same body laid in the tomb is the body that's now been raised up. On the other hand, there's a discontinuity. There's a difference between the body of Jesus laid in the tomb and the body of the resurrected Jesus, brothers and sisters. And this difference is so is so fundamental that people oftentimes didn't even recognize him. It was the same Jesus, but they didn't recognize him because of this difference. Jesus has been raised up in a body that can no longer die, is no longer susceptible to death. And so therefore the resurrection of Jesus has brought about a wholly new reality, something that's never existed in the history of the world, even since before Adam and Eve fell. It's the beginning of a new creation. When you look at Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, what you see is the beginning is the beginning of the new creation. So we remember the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. The first man, Adam, is from the earth, earthy. He came from the hand of God in that way. The second man is from heaven. Then in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Therefore from now on we recognize no one according to the flesh. We don't look at each other and see people and evaluate each other this morning according to the flesh. No longer do we do that. Because even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the resurrected Christ, he is a new creation. This is a wonderful mystery. But then there's more. Here's a question for us. And maybe you've considered this before. um, but, But the question is, when Jesus was not manifesting himself to the disciples after his resurrection, where was he? Where was Jesus? Was he, was he living hidden, secret, somewhere else in Judea? Was he somewhere else in Galilee? If you had searched long enough, you might find him somewhere. Was he, was he still there? That's not an idle, speculative question. Where was he? In the New Testament, the resurrection of Jesus from the grave and the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father 
are of one piece together. So as one example, Ephesians chapter 1, may you know what is the surpassing greatness of his power which he worked in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So after 40 days, Jesus ascends into heaven. We could be tempted to think he'd been walking around on the earth all the times before that. But the reality is that visible ascension when he was bodily taken up, obviously, that's not how Jesus gets places generally, right? Why do you think he visibly ascended like that? It was for our sake. He didn't need to do that, as we know. So that visible ascension was kind of marking the finality and the completion of his ascension. But it did not mark the first time he returned to heaven. Remember Jesus' words to Mary Magdalene. He said, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended, finally, to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, and now he says, I am ascending. I'm in the process of ascending. I have, but I'm still coming, making appearances here. I'm in the process of ascending to my Father. And your Father, and my God, and your God. So question, again, think about this. When Jesus wasn't manifesting himself to the disciples, where was he? He's sitting enthroned in glory at the right hand of the Father. Therefore, whenever Jesus appears to his disciples after his resurrection, do you realize what is going on? He is, by default, manifesting himself to them. Not only is he himself now the beginning of new creation, so when you perceive Jesus now with the eyes of faith, you see him standing there before you, what do you see? What do you see? The new creation. There he is. And so therefore, us, for us who are in Christ, we are a new creation. When you see Jesus standing there before you, not only do you see the one who is the new creation, you see, and we don't see this anymore because he's finally ascended, but they would see the one who is sitting at the right hand of the omnipotent, all-powerful, supreme God and creator of the universe. That's who you see. Here then is a mystery revealed to us. And yet at the same time a mystery too wonderful for us to ever comprehend. Now, every appearance of Jesus is by default a manifestation of Jesus and his saving power. Just to see Jesus. Just to see him is to see the new creation. Things that were not true prior to his resurrection. Just to see Jesus is to see the ruler and sovereign and omnipotent king of the universe. Things that were differently, not not true in the same way, prior to his resurrection. And so his manifestation is not just bodily to physical eyes, but spiritually to the eyes of faith. Now, My brothers and my sisters think of these words now from John's first epistle. In light of all this, 
consider. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not been manifested as yet what we will be. We know that when he is manifested, not simply when he appears and we, and, and we, we see him like people saw him before his resurrection, no. When he is manifested at his second coming, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Is there not mystery, wonder in those words? What does it mean to see him just as he is? You cannot plumb the depths of that, can you? I cannot. And so with all this in mind, we camped out for a while. But now, let's come back to our passage this morning. After these things, Jesus manifested himself. Again, to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And he manifested himself. And I love these words here. This is like, you could underline and circle these. In this way. Are you set up? Has John set us up now? So we come to verses 2 to 3. Simon Peter and Thomas, called Didymus and Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will also come with you. It doesn't get more mundane than that, does it? When, when Jesus last manifested himself to the disciples, they were in Judea, in the south. Now, they're in the north, in Galilee, by the shores of the Sea of Galilee. How do they, why, why are they in Galilee? Well, before Jesus died, he told his disciples, after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. And then after he was raised, Jesus appeared to the women and he said, go tell the disciples, tell them this, do not be afraid, go and report to my brothers to leave for Galilee. There they will see me. So at some point, apparently, Jesus even told them specifically, not just in Galilee, but exactly where and when he was going to meet them. So we read in Matthew 28, the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. So if he told them the mountain... He must have told them the the day or the time. Otherwise, how do they know when to all show up at the mountain? Right. Now, here in John 21, you you put this together, right? They're going up to Galilee to meet Jesus at the mountain. Obviously, they're not at the mountain right now. And there's only seven of them here, not 11. So that tells us they're still waiting, apparently, for the time Jesus has appointed The time has not yet come. What to do then while you're waiting? What do you do while you're waiting? Simon Peter said to them, to Thomas, to Nathaniel, to the sons of Zebedee, and the two other disciples, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will also come with 
you. Now, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Zebedee is first introduced always in connection with naming his sons, James and John. And their work as fishermen. Okay, so John doesn't do that, however. This is really strange in the Gospel of John. He refers to Zebedee and the sons of Zebedee with zero introduction. No introduction at all. He's assuming that you all know who Zebedee is and who his sons are. He's assuming you know that from the gospel tradition, capital T, as is preserved in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where we learn that Zebedee was a wealthy fisherman. And that before they left their father to go after Jesus, Zebedee's sons had worked for their father in the family business, in the family fishing business. And in fact, they were partners with Simon Peter in the fishing business. I bring that up... Well, maybe that's not the place now. When, when John refers without any introduction to the sons of Zebedee, in other words, and there's more evidence I have for this in footnotes, and you can look at it later if you like, I believe he is assuming that you know in particular the part of the gospel tradition, and when I say tradition, I don't mean something that's not historical or inspired or infallible, but the part of that tradition preserved for us only in Luke. So in other words, John records this story assuming you know Luke. That's why he refers to the sons of Zebedee with no introduction. So Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around Jesus and listening to the word of God, he was standing at the edge of the lake of Gennesaret, the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake. And the fishermen, having gotten out of them, were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's. And he asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the crowds from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, We labored all night and caught nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them, and they came and filled both of the boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw this, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon, were also likewise amazed. And Jesus said to Simon, do not fear, from now on you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Okay, here we are in John 21. After the resurrection of Jesus, why are the disciples going fishing again? 
Well, what else are they supposed to do while they're waiting to see Jesus at the mountain he designated? I I do not believe that this fishing expedition is some big failure, failure on the part of the disciples. On the other hand, we can assume their total uncertainty about what the future holds for them. Just try for a moment to put yourself in their shoes. I can't even hardly conceive. They have to be wondering, what is going on? What does all this mean? What is happening? What is going to happen? They know that Jesus is risen. Although, how does that sink in quite? They've grasped something of what that resurrection means for who Jesus is. But what does it mean for their own future? What does it mean for Jesus the Messiah's in your handout, his kingdom? This they cannot grasp. How can the kingdom be coming when Jesus the king is going away? Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will also come with you. So they went out and got into the boat. And that night, night being considered one of the best times for fishing on the Sea of Galilee, they caught nothing. You, you reminded here, you know, flashbacks, right? We're reminded of Peter's response to Jesus back at the very beginning, before they had left everything to follow Jesus. Jesus told him to put his boat out into the deep water, let his nets down for a catch, and Jesus and Peter answered, Master, we labored all night and caught nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. That day turned out to be the day that Simon Peter and the sons of Zebedee left everything to follow Jesus. Now, this is a different day. Okay? The Jesus that they, that they first left their boats and left their nets to follow is now, on this day, the crucified and risen Lord. And yet for all that, here they are in Simon's boat again, casting their nets for a catch of fish. It's a very different day, but it's also very similar. It couldn't be more different because the Jesus they left their nets to follow is now the crucified and risen Lord. And yet, the Jesus they left their nets to follow, though he is risen, they find themselves casting nets again. Furthermore, that night they caught nothing. So we come to verse 4. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Now the last three times Jesus has manifested himself, we see the same language. When Mary Magdalene turned around, John says, it's like another John word, he's just using this word. Mary Magdalene turned around and she saw Jesus standing there. He, he, he could have said, and she saw Jesus, or she saw Jesus there, 
But John Lake says she saw Jesus standing there. Later, when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and while the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, Thomas with them, and Jesus came, the doors having been shut. And John is careful to repeat this word. He stood in their midst. There he was. Now we read for the fourth time, but when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. The impression John gives is that Jesus didn't come to the beach by walking. He didn't get there in the usual way. Jesus is now the man who is from heaven, who comes from the Father's own presence. How does Jesus move from the right hand of God to a beach in Galilee? Here's a mystery that is too great and, let us add, too wonderful. It is a wonderful mystery. It's too wonderful for us, but we love it. And associated with this mystery is the reality that the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Now, see, see, this is like John is, oh, he is a master. Of course, he's inspired by the Spirit of God. But he's going to tell us about the manifestation of Jesus. And then we get to this point and he says, and they did not know it was Jesus. So he's still waiting. He builds, in a sense, the tension of the moment. Was it their distance from the beach, about 100 yards, that prevented them from recognizing Jesus? I don't know, really, but it doesn't seem to be John's point. We're reminded again of Mary Magdalene. She turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. See, Jesus, in his resurrection state, is so wonderfully changed and so wonderfully glorious that for them now to see him, they don't immediately recognize him. How then will Jesus, in your handout, manifest himself to his disciples? So Jesus said to them, children, calling out over a hundred yards of water, right? Children! Do you not have any fish? Now, Jesus doesn't give anything away. I mean, right, Jesus does this, right? He's got an agenda. He, do, he doesn't say, it is me, Jesus. Children, we might say, oh, they should have figured it out. Children might have been somewhat unexpected coming from a stranger, but it wouldn't be nearly so out of place in that culture as it would be in ours. You could, some have translated it, lads, right? So Jesus isn't giving himself away. What about the fact that Jesus assumes or knows they don't have any fish? You do not have any fish? Maybe a stranger standing on the beach would assume they don't have any fish because they're still out fishing at the break of day. He doesn't give anything away, which is to say, in your handout, He has not yet manifested himself to the disciples. Do you see the point there? 
Jesus is standing there on the beach. They saw him, right? When he called out to them, they all looked and saw him. But has he yet manifested himself? No, he has not. He's not yet manifested himself fully. Right? He is there, and, and, and he is the, the new creation, but they don't recognize him yet. Children, do you not have any fish? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast. Why would the disciples cast on the other side of the boat at the word of a stranger on the beach? I wonder if it wasn't the simple confidence with which this stranger is speaking. Somehow he sounds really pretty certain. Maybe it was the certainty in his voice. So they cast. And then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Jesus manifested himself to the disciples in this way. How can we not be reminded then, and how do you think they would not have been reminded, of the first miraculous catch of fish when Simon Peter and his brother Andrew and the sons of Zebedee left everything to follow Jesus? By manifesting himself to them in this way, Jesus is assuring the disciples that even though he's going away, their calling is still the same. What did he say to them after the first miraculous catch of fish? Remember, he said to Peter, in the hearing of all the other disciples, do not fear, from now on, you will be catching men. So by manifesting himself in this way, Jesus is assuring the disciples that even though he's going away, he'll still be with them, enabling them as the risen Lord to fulfill their calling and bring forth fruit to his glory. We're reminded of what Jesus said in chapter 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Implication? With me. You can do all things. So this miraculous catch of fish it is so much more than just something amazing. Like, like this cool, guess what, it's me. Oh. It's more than a practical provision of food. You guys need food, I know. Or you need a little income right now. No, it's a sign. It's a sign of, to the disciples of their calling and of the coming of the kingdom. It's a sign of the fact that Jesus will still be with them, enabling them, empowering them to fulfill their calling. They, may not, they didn't grasp all this immediately. They weren't sitting there in the boat processing all of this all at once and getting it. But that's the thing. The disciples just kept pondering and thinking. And John looked back on this, I think, even before the, the Pentecost, day of Pentecost, but certainly after, and he saw its full significance. Continue in verses 7 to 8. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, and we remember, we remember that John, the author of this gospel, 
He only wants to be known as the disciple Jesus loved. We remember that some accuse John of arrogance. Like, yeah, I'm the one Jesus loved. That's ridiculous, right? I want to be known only as the guy that Jesus loves, right? That's, that's humbling. Did he love me on my merits? No, he loves me according to his good pleasure. So John just desires to be known as the disciple Jesus loved. He said to Peter, It is the Lord. Jesus manifested himself in this way. It is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard, it is the Lord. Now, most of our translations do an indirect discourse. So they have, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, and that's very legitimate. But in the Greek, as it, it's very difficult to translate this. It really it's impossible according. I, I think maybe this is the best way. Because John repeats it in the present tense. It is the Lord. Because he wants that phrase to just ring in our minds. Simon Peter heard, It is the Lord. He put his outer garment on, or he tucked up his outer garment. We'll come back to this next week. For he was stripped for work, and he cast himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 200 cubits away at 100 yards, dragging the net full of fish. Again, John, who was there that day in that boat, relates these things vividly. Remembering them not only as the one who was there, but as the one who actually was the one who said to Peter, it is the Lord. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring from the fish which you have now caught. Now, here's a big question. Uh, this was, but I came to, for myself, a strong conclusion on this. I'll ask you, why does Jesus tell them to bring from the fish that they just caught? Is it to supplement the meal that he has already provided? Maybe. I don't really care. Because even if that's the case... It's never stated, and it's not the point. The only thing Jesus says, the only thing we're told he says, is bring from the fish which you have now caught. Let's see. Let's see this catch. The main purpose of those words, then, is to focus in your handout, to focus our attention, to focus our our eyes, our minds, our hearts, to focus the disciples' attention on the miraculous catch of fish. Jesus is saying, look look what I just did. Look at that. The main purpose of the words we see clearly when we go on to read in verse 11, what's the result of Jesus saying this? Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. 
Now look at that. John describes the results of Jesus' instruction. Jesus said, bring, bring from the net, bring from the fish which you have now caught. And John says, oh, so they did it. And he describes the result not in terms of more fish being put on the fire, but only in terms of the discovery of just how miraculous that catch of fish is. That's the point. Never mind if they're eating the fish or not. It makes no difference. There's nothing at all symbolic about the number 153. That's just how many fish there were. And it's just like John, who was there to give us these very detailed remembrances. The point is the great number, all of them large. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. Now it's interesting. John points out the net was not torn. How do we not remember the first miraculous catch of fish? When we're told that their nets began to break. Now, in that case, who cares? You lose a few fish. After all, your boats are sinking. You probably need to throw some out anyway. The loss of a few fish was insignificant because, because the, you know, the disciples are being called away from that now. We don't even need all these fish anymore because we're being called away to follow Jesus, to abandon our nets, to abandon our boats, and to follow Jesus and catch men, not fish. Now, in that case, catching fish ended up just as a metaphor. A metaphor. Today, today, the miraculous catch of fish is from the very beginning a sign. A symbol of their calling. The fact that Jesus, the risen Lord, is going to be with them. He's going to be with them, empowering and enabling them to fulfill their calling. Therefore, what does it mean when the net is not broken? Now, I was so excited about this because 153 is interesting. I can see why people are like, there's got to be some special meaning to that. Because usually you'd round it. You'd say it was about 150 fish. But John, he remembers, and I know fishermen, right, maybe they like to give the details. It was an amazing catch, 153. That was what we counted. But I think John says there were 153 and the net was not torn, which means, what does that mean? Not one of the 153 fish, to be exact, were lost. Reminding us of the words of Jesus. Now this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. Maybe the disciples didn't see all this immediately, but John clearly saw it after some reflection. Because he carefully records the details of this manifestation of Jesus. The miraculous catch of fish, then, is a sign. Confirming Jesus' words, confirming his words to the disciples when he first came to them after the resurrection, right? He said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Now today, the disciples go on fishing because they don't know what that means. What is our future? What is the future of the kingdom? 
And so Jesus comes to them now, and instead of saying again, as the Father has sent me, I send you, he gives them a sign, a miraculous catch of fish. Therefore, it's also a sign confirming the words that Jesus is soon going to speak to them. Hey, what are they waiting for here? They're waiting to meet Jesus on the mountain. Jesus came to them unexpectedly prior to the mountain. But when they get to the mountain, what's he going to say to them? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore. Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you. Always, even to the end of the age. What a love, and what we are intended to love about this passage in John 21 is that Jesus comes to the disciples when? In the moment of their greatest uncertainty. And what does he do? He manifests himself. Assuring them he will always be with them as their risen Lord, empowering and enabling them to do the work of his kingdom. And then we read in verse 12, Jesus said to them, Come, have breakfast. None of the disciples dared to question him, Who are you? Knowing that, and again, in your translations, I'm sure it will say, knowing that it was the Lord. But John again puts it in the present tense so that we hear this phrase again for the third time, knowing that it is the Lord who has manifested himself. None of them dared to question him. This is a little confusing at first, so you can think about this later, but but let me just summarize. The word for question him is used very rarely in the New Testament, very rarely. And it implies, it means a careful examination. It's almost like an interrogation, like a, a searching something out. And so what John is saying is that None of the disciples dared to interrogate Jesus, you know, to kind of search it out, to pry, to penetrate, to say, Jesus, is it really you? How can it be you? I I, I know it's you, but how? How can it be you? No, no, they left all that to the side, and they remained content simply to know that it is the Lord. Brothers and sisters, when we we stand before Jesus someday face to face and we see him, I mean, that's going to be such a mysterious, such a wonderful thing that in a a certain fleshliness or humanness, we might say, how can this be? How can it be you? Certainly even more so for the disciples who knew him in the days of his flesh. How can this be you? But no, we'll leave all that aside. We won't penetrate or pry or ever comprehend the full mysteries of his person. And we will simply be content, more than content, to know it is the Lord. And now it is the Lord who says to them, come, have breakfast. (laughs) Again, what could be more mundane than that except a meal with the risen Lord, the new creation, the one who sits at the right hand of the Father, is anything but mundane. 
by its very nature. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And the fish likewise. Does that ring a bell to us? It certainly did for the disciples, certainly did for John. The only other time John mentions the Sea of Tiberias, if you're reading through John's Gospel and you're looking for the Sea of Tiberias, it shows up here and it shows up in chapter 6. That's it. And as it happens, the last time Jesus was at the Sea of Tiberias, he was hosting a meal. John chapter 6, verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves, or the breads, plural, the bread, and having given thanks, he distributed or gave them out to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish. Now here we are in chapter 21, and John very purposefully echoes the language of chapter 6 almost exactly. Jesus came, and he took the bread, and he gave it to them. And the fish likewise. If the miraculous catch of fish is the sign that Jesus, their risen Lord, is still going to be with them, helping them, enabling them, empowering them to do his kingdom work, then this meal, this meal, this breakfast that Jesus provides is the sign that he will still be with them providing for all their needs and calling them to himself to enjoy fellowship and communion with himself. Table fellowship with himself. Uh, Chapter 20, we read, Jesus came and stood in their midst. Now again, we know he didn't come by knocking on the door and walking through. No, he, he came and stood there. He manifested himself. Okay, Then we read the next passage. Jesus came and stood in their midst. And now John uses this word again. Jesus came. We must say, Jesus was already there. Why are you saying Jesus came? Because that word came, that word came indicates Jesus is manifesting himself. Jesus came and took the bread, and gave it to them, and the fish likewise. He uses this language because he sees Jesus manifesting himself. Not just in the miraculous catch of fish, but in the meal that he hosts. Jesus comes to the disciples in this moment of their total uncertainty. And manifests himself to them. So John concludes. This is now the third time. That Jesus was manifested to the disciples. After he was raised from the dead. Three times then we've seen these words. It is the Lord. It is the Lord. It is the Lord. Jesus manifested himself. It is the Lord then, the risen Lord, brothers and sisters, who enables you, who empowers you daily for the work of his kingdom, 
And we are all kingdom workers. In the mundaneness of our homes, of our workplaces, we're representatives of his kingdom, but we are representatives not in our own strength, but the sovereign risen Lord who manifested himself on that day to the disciples on the shores of the Sea of Galilee is still the one today who enables you and empowers you to live out his calling on your life every day when it's most difficult, right? When sin is attacking you the hardest, when your flesh is rearing its ugly head the most. It is the Lord who enables us in his kingdom work. It's it's the Lord who emboldens us and gives us the words to be his witnesses. Second of all, it is the Lord, the risen Lord, who provides for us and cares for us and who calls us into fellowship with himself. See, that breakfast on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, that was not, that was not just some last farewell meal. That was, that, was, that was the sign of the fellowship he calls us into with himself. Therefore, in conclusion, it is the Lord, the risen, the risen Lord, who is with us, even to the end of the age. That's really what this passage in John is about. He is with us to the end of the age. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that I pray that you take your word, work it in us. Let us be men and women of faith and therefore men and women of action, of obedience, motivated by the wonderful and glorious manifestation of Jesus himself after his resurrection. And of the fact that one day, when he is manifested to us at the second coming, we will then be like him because mystery of all mysteries, wonder of all wonders, we will then be like him because we shall see him just as he is. Thank you, Lord, for the glory of your gospel. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.